0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Good morning. Morning, my name is Tim. I'm the student pastor here at the church. Uh, I am honored today to bring you God's Word uh, for us this morning. If you've been worshiping with us for a little while, you know that we've been going through a series on Romans, and we're taking... Uh, a break from that at the beginning of, of Holy Week here on Palm Sunday, we're looking at a text uh, out of Luke that is uh, likely one that's very familiar uh, to those of you who've been in church a while and have, have sat through services on Palm Sunday, in the triumphal entry, but uh, looking at it, we're going to see that, that uh, it has a lot to say to us about Christ and who he is as king. So if you would turn to your Bibles, um, also actually if you would like to dismiss your kids, I see them waving in the back, <laughs> sorry, Bill handled this part of the first service, I just forgot. So kids, you can go out and uh, have your celebration time uh, with Janice in the back. If you would look looked with me, uh, Luke chapter 19, going to be starting in uh, verses 28 through 40, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me, so this is God's word to us this morning. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us who you are in your word. God, I ask that as we look at it now this morning, that you would open our hearts That you would open our minds to your gospel. And that it would be pleasing to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite movies uh, is a movie called The Avengers. Uh, Some of you are familiar with it. It's a movie that came out in 2012. It's a part of the Marvel comic series and superhero uh, kind of thing. And there's a scene in there that I just think is absolutely brilliant. And the first time I saw it, I literally thought if I ever get the opportunity to preach a sermon on the kingship of Christ, this will be my introduction. (laughs) So I was faithful to that. I sort of feel like an overachiever that I've had this intro for the last four years uh, for this sermon, but uh, it really is brilliant. There's a part in this movie where uh, Loki, who's sort of the the evil villain, uh, has a a crowd cornered outside the theater, and he's got this kind of... Uh, this sort of like uh, force field that he's forced them into being right in front of him and he's trying to get them to kneel. And he says, he, he says, kneel once and they don't kneel. And then he slams his, his scepter uh, on the ground and says, kneel! And, and he forces everyone just to kneel and everyone kneels. And he says this speech that I think is just absolutely brilliant. Here it is. Is not this simpler is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. And in the end, you will always kneel. It's oh, brilliant. And then at that time, there's this older German man that stands up and he looks Loki right in the eyes. And he says, not to men like you. Did you catch it? Did you catch what he didn't say? He didn't stand up and say, no, we weren't made to be ruled. You're crazy. He acknowledged that that may be true. We may have been made to be ruled, but you're not the one that gets to rule us. And so for us this morning, as we we jump into this text, there's two things that I don't think I need to convince you of this morning. One is that you were made to be ruled is that we are in need of an authority of to look to someone uh, to, to, to rule us and to defend us and to come into our lives. And the second thing is that I don't need to prove to you that Christ is the king and the ruler because that's an objective fact. Christ is on his throne. He has been ruling for eternity, past, present, and future. We didn't elect him. It's not like we had listened to a debate where we thought this guy's policies make the most sense. Yes, we'll make you king. He has been on his throne ...for all of eternity, and he will be forevermore. So as we look at this text, I want to be clear about what we're doing. We're going to be looking at it to to see if we recognize him as king. And then after that, what the appropriate response is. And so my goal with this is that because of who Jesus is... ...we would recognize him as king and respond. Again, because of who Jesus is, we would recognize him as king and respond... I'm going to do something crazy this morning. I'm only going to have two points, not three. So um, if you're waiting for the third, you're going to be here for a while. It's it's two. So jump with us in in recognizing him as king, recognizing him as on his throne. Um, Look at verses 35, just through 36. It says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Well, if we're going to look at how we recognize Jesus as king, we would want to look at how the Jews identified and recognized Jesus as king. And uh, if if you uh, heard this morning, there's a verse from Zechariah 9 that, that is a prophecy fulfilled at this time, and the Jews would have recognized that. And it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation as he humbled and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, uh, you'd be excited if you were a Jew because now here's your king coming into Jerusalem and you would have recognized what's happening. You would have grown up hearing from your parents and your grandparents that the coming king, the coming Messiah, the one that all the scripture is pointing to is going to enter Jerusalem in this way and that would have made sense to you. You would have been familiar with Uh, old testament israel and that there were good kings and there were bad kings and that they kept messing up and and that this this can't be the king that we're waiting for and that they're all pointing towards a better king you would have been familiar with deuteronomy 18 that says the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him that you shall listen you would have known that moses is pointing to this guy entering jerusalem but we have to ask did they all get it Did they actually understand and recognize the real significance of what this meant for them today with Jesus coming into Jerusalem? You see, they identified a king, but did they recognize their king? I can identify Tom Hanks in a crowd. If he was sitting here this morning, I promise you, my wife has made me watch You've Got Mail more times than I can count. I know exactly what he looks like. But I wouldn't recognize him outside of his movies. I wouldn't notice him doing something and say, yeah, that's something Tom Hanks would do. I recognize him. I don't know his likes and his dislikes. I simply can identify him as a character. And friends, that's what so many of the Jews did with Jesus. They identified him as the king, the one that the scriptures were pointing, but did they recognize him as their king? You see, we know enough about Uh, we're not told specifically where they are spiritually. We're not even really told how many people are are in our text this morning at the entry. But we know enough about their hearts being Israel and about our hearts to know that some would simply have just identified him as king and others would have recognized him as their king. So the question to to go into this is, is what did they miss if they didn't recognize him as king? Uh, For this, we'd have to go back to John 6, if you're familiar with that passage it's uh, early in earlier in Jesus' ministry, and there's the feeding of the five thousand. He has um, five loaves of bread and two fish, and he feeds five thousand people with it, and still has enough leftovers for twelve baskets left over. And the text says this: When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, "This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world." Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. By himself, You see, knew, Jesus knew that they identified him as a prophet, as being sent by God, but he knew that they weren't ready to understand what him being king meant for their lives. And it's not a coincidence that right after this miracle, right after Jesus did this miracle with the food, that, that is the, the people in the text said, Okay, we'll make you king. You know why? Because they said, Boy, this might work out for us. This guy might come in handy. Let's make him in charge. And so immediately after Jesus has the, t- the, the part about saying, I am the bread of life, you're mixing it if you think that my kingdom begins and ends with your stomachs. I've come to bring you so much more. I've come to bring you life and you're missing it all together so you're not ready to see me on my throne yet. See, Israel wanted physical deliverance. They wanted deliverance from persecution from Rome. They wanted earthly ease for, for Christ to come in as king and then make things comfortable for them. And so we're, for, we're presented with a choice here this morning, just like Israel was, of what do you think your greatest problem is? Is our greatest problem physical and our circumstances that we encounter, or is it a spiritual one? And so my challenge to us this morning is to, to look at this text, to evaluate that question. Do we recognize him as being the king that we need and not the king that we create him to be? See, is there something that uh, is happening in this text that, if you notice, is completely different than the way Jesus has sort of portrayed himself in the New Testament? Uh, all throughout the New Testament, you have miracles, um, uh, Jesus performing these things, and then what does he do immediately after? He, he withdraws right? He, he says, go pre- he'll heal someone and says, go present yourself to the priest, and then they turn around and he's gone, and he says, tell no one about it. Or then he answers these questions uh, that, that, that people ask, and, and it's in a parable, and they walk away thinking, I kind of understood that, but it's not really clear. He's, he's sort of masking his ministry. And then think about this text this morning. He's not being subtle anymore. He's coming into the capital city of Jerusalem on a donkey, no less, and saying, I am now ready for you to see your king. I am ready to to bring into my kingship, to usher into my kingdom, and I'm not going to mask it or hide it anymore. I'm now ready for you to see who I am, to see that I'm not just the king of your earthly comforts and your setbacks, but that I am the king that you actually need. You see, it wasn't a coincidence that he's riding in on a donkey. Do you realize that? At this time... If you were going to conquer things, if you were going to kind of make a military or political stance, you would have ridden in on a horse. And Jesus rides in on a donkey. I mean, can you imagine the people that day who thought he was still all about just kind of delivering them from political oppression, think he's going to be this this mighty military. They're looking down the road and they're saying, okay, I wonder what he's going to come in on. And they're saying, yeah, probably six horses, like a golden chariot. And then they're looking and they say, is that a donkey? he's on? It's a donkey. Jesus didn't do that because all the horses were rented out that day. He did that because he knew our greatest issue, the kind of king we need, is not solved by a military horse, but by a humble and meek king entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. He knew that our greatest issue in life is that we have this separation from God because of our sin, and he comes in and he fixes it in this way. That's the kind of king that he is. But you know the reality? He didn't come riding in on a horse this time. There will be a day where he comes riding in on a horse. Where he doesn't come in on a donkey, humble and and, and meek. He comes in as this obvious warrior entering in on a horse and every knee will bow. And you will have the choice to bow to him in mercy or to bow to him in justice. And so I urge you, I urge us, as we look at this text to respond, let's decide what kind of king he is right now because he's presenting us with what our greatest need is. And well, depending on that, we're going to have one of two responses. If, if, you, if we don't get it, if we don't understand what his kingship is about, we're going to look at him, we're going to want to grab Jesus, we're going to want to make him king, and now we're going to say, now do things for me, right? We're going to say, I'll make you king as long as you... And we fill in the blank. And we don't actually say this out loud, right? Like we know enough about our theology not to say this out loud, but but the way that we think and we process things is we so often go there. And you know what that reveals? It reveals that you never really chose to follow him as king at all. Because that's not a king, that's a servant. Following him as king means that you follow him and that you trust him in the midst of this. I encountered this uh, about a little over a year ago. Most of you know we have our daughter, Ruthie. Um, and my wife and I were kind of surprised when, uh, when she was born that I'm normally like the, the kind of calm, collected, you know, I'll kind of settle things down, and I just freaked out. And, and she would call her friends, I remember that first week of, of Ruthie, saying, like, how do I get Tim to stop freaking out? Um, and, and that was kind of, for me, uh, at the height of this was when uh, we first had Ruthie, and we're in the hospital room that night, and the nurse had said, do you want us to put Ruthie in the nursery? And I said, absolutely not. She's going to stay here in the room with us, um, and we're going to get the greatest night's sleep ever. <laughs> so about an hour after, uh, Ruthie starts, okay, I claim that it was choking. Steph made me say that it's coughing, but we're still unclear. Starts kind of uh, choke-coughing. And so I go and I page the nurse and the nurse comes in and and she takes Ruthie and puts her on her stomach and starts hitting her and and Ruthie coughs up and the nurse gives her back to me and she says, oh yeah, she's fine. If she turns blue, you need to come get us. (laughs) So after about an hour of just wide-eyed staring at Ruthie, I sent her in uh, to the nursery. (laughs) Because I wasn't prepared for this. Uh, all of a sudden, I've never really encountered this, this level of fear where I just, I love someone so much, and, and, and there's a fear of what, what if something happens to this person? And you know what I realized? I realized that if something happened to my daughter, I would have a very hard time following God as king. And it doesn't mean that in the midst of that, and it's not like there was nothing wrong with Ruthie, um, but even in the midst of that, it's not like God doesn't find me where I'm at. But if he's saying, if you think my kingship begins and ends with just that. You're missing it. I am sovereign over all. And I will find you in your brokenness. I will find you in your discomfort, in your hurt. That's the kind of king that you have. But so often, I admit, I have this, this sort of trajectory of how I think my life is supposed to go, right? It's that from the very beginning, okay, I want to I grow up. Um, I want to make sure to be able to have a, a good job. I want to get married. I want to have... Uh, this number of kids, and, and no more or no less, and, um, and I want to live to this certain age, and I want to be healthy. And friends, do you ever think back to when you thought that you were your own king? If God had granted you your desires, what your life would be like? So there's a reason for that. It's because you were never meant to be in that role. We were never meant to to look to ourselves as our own kings and our own kingdom. We were meant to look to Christ and his beauty and his kingdom as is presented to us in the text. Paul Tripp, the author and speaker, talks about what this is like. He says, when you look to your own self as king and kingdom, it's like going to the Grand Canyon and dropping yourself right in the middle and instead of looking, surrounding yourself with four walls of mirrors. And looking around and saying, this is great, it just doesn't get any better than this. That's what it's like when we look to our limited selves and try to make our own desires and ourselves king. But the second response, and the one that I hope we would do this morning, is that we allow the mirrors to lift up and we suddenly realize where we are. That we're in the presence of the king and that we are under his rule and that that is a good thing. Because it's only bad news If you're in that position in the illustration, when someone is in front of you claiming to be king and they're not good, but the truth is we have a good king who rules us. And so once we recognize that, that that's the kind of king that he comes into our lives to be, it forces us to respond. It needs to yield a response. You see, Bill has talked about this often uh, on Sunday morning, that there's a pattern of scripture that we follow that there's an indicative, and then there's the imperative. The indicative is the truth about who God is, and then out of the indicative comes the command, comes the imperative. So because God is a good king, there are certain commands that just make sense in light of that. And we think this way anyway. Imagine if I came into your house and I said, get out, leave your house. You'd kind of look at me the way you're all doing right now, confused. Confused. Imagine if right before that I said, your house is on fire, get out of your house. Suddenly that command starts to make a whole lot more sense. And that's the pattern that we have in Scripture that we need to not confuse. I was reminded of this uh, last week. I got the opportunity to hang out with my family. My sister and her family came to visit us from Rhode Island. And my sister told me that when they're on their way here, they stopped at a Starbucks. And my eight-year-old nephew who... Uh, they are all in line, and, and my nephew kind of has this like roughhouse relationship with his dad. And so he turns around in line and just starts like, kind of hitting his dad, messing around with his leg. And then some random guy grabs him and says, what are you doing, kid? And he turns around and he sees that his dad was at the front of the line, <laughs> not near him. A failure to recognize first who it is, then yields the response, right? It makes sense to us. But so often we want to go with the command first. We want to say, what are we supposed to do without reminding ourselves, well, why do we do it? We do this, we worship God because he's deserving of our worship. So then this last point, we see that we respond in worship. So if you look with me, 36 through 38. It says, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So the disciples had seen who Christ was. They had known the truth. They had seen the miracles. They had listened to his teaching. And then that yielded the proper response, which is presented before us, blessed is the king. And then do you see how they responded as well? It says, with a loud voice. And there's a challenge here for us this morning. You see, once you recognize the king, once you recognize that who he is uh, d- demands a response in worship, how you then worship shows if you really understood that he is king to begin with. And I'm not just so often want to take worship and we want to put it in the context of just Sunday morning, uh, just our church family. But friends, worship is, is a lifestyle. a lifestyle. Worship is, is how, do you, how do you respond when you go to your jobs and how do you treat your families and, and how do you interact with your neighbors. This is worship. Can you imagine the disciples welcoming this king halfway like we so often do in our worship? And I was convicted of this. Imagine the, the, the coming king entering in the fulfillment of, of all the scriptures. You're at the climax of the story of redemption. And can you imagine the disciples kind of just playing the part? greeting. No. Because this king deserves all or nothing. He's either the king who is on his throne and deserves all of the glory and admiration and affection or none at all. But there's no in between. You see, there's no third option. We've created a third option in our American evangelical circles that says that you should worship God enough to know, enough to show him that he loves you but not so much that you look weird doing it. Some of you know, my dad, after being in the church for 50 plus years, his dad was a pastor. He worked with Willow Creek Church to bring a leadership summit to Haiti a few years ago, renounced his faith altogether, and is now one of the most outspoken and well-read atheists I've ever met in my life. And do you know what? My dad understood this concept. He understood that you don't sit in church week after week nominally worshiping a God. You're either for him or you're against him. He's either your king and rules your life or you want nothing to do with him. There's no in between. And this is what the disciples knew after seeing who he was, after seeing his kingdom, after realizing that their need was spiritual and not just physical. They said, this, this yields, it demands a response. That is my whole heart in worship. And this is what our lives are. And then lastly, we see that their response is spreading the kingdom. Look with me in verse 39. It says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I love that verse. Do you want to know why? Because Jesus is saying, The very fact that you think people should be quiet about me means that the rocks understand the gospel more than you do. It means that the rocks understand more about why I came than you do. You're not even close to getting it. You've turned this in to to, to something by by being so scared of the Romans that you fail to see the king right in front of your eyes. You see, immediately before this text, Bill mentioned it earlier, uh, before the triumphal entry, we had the raising of Lazarus. And and you read that the Pharisees uh, were talking and they kind of met after Lazarus was raised from the dead. And they said, if these signs continue, if Jesus keeps doing this, more and more people are going to believe. And this is getting traction and momentum. And that's an issue because the Romans are kind of starting to talk. And they're going to hear that more and more people are having more of an allegiance to the real king than the false kingship of the Roman Empire. And so they missed the king altogether. And because they missed the king, they missed spreading the kingdom. They missed that when you follow a king, you learn what he's about, you learn what he cares about, and our King tells us that you're not supposed to be quiet about who I am. We don't have to; we can't fully go into to what this means, but uh, the kingdom of God is used 66 times in the Gospels. The kingdom of God—it's the idea that we're in the already and the not yet—that that Christ has come and has ushered in His kingdom, and that Satan is being. Uh, restrained, and that we are now citizens of heaven, that we have victory over sin, but that we're still waiting for something. We're still waiting to go fully home. We're still waiting waiting for the final uh, consummation of, of God's kingdom to be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And so now we're at this in-between point where we just, we kind of wait, and in the meantime we have the the awesome honor and privilege to worship this king who we're going to be with for eternity. And you know what the crazy thing is? We don't really tell people about it. And why? I think if we're honest. Because if you're like me, you know why. I get the opportunity a lot. I'm one of those annoying cyclists that you all honk the horn at uh, on the island, so I'm, I'm sorry. But uh, during cycling, I get the opportunity to, to so often uh, just spend 8, or nine, ten hours during the week with guys who who haven't heard the gospel. And as soon as they hear that I'm a pastor, they, they have questions, right? They kind of want to, you know, any, it's like anything they've ever wondered about God, they now try to get out during those rides. And, and honestly, I'm all the time presented with the opportunity to share the gospel. And I confess that I often don't. I rarely do. And, and the reason why I don't, that I was convicted this week, is the same reason why the Pharisees thought the gospel shouldn't be spread. Well, what if I'm persecuted? What if people think I'm weird? What if I'm known as, as that guy at work or that student in school that just keeps talking about who Christ is? You see, unlike the Pharisees, we believe in God, we recognize him as Savior, but so often we're guilty of having the same attitude that caused Jesus to say, if you're silent, the very rocks would cry out. My prayer for us as a church, as a community, is that the rocks of Hilton Head would not have to cry out about the kingdom of God because we were silent? In conclusion, I want to uh, share already that a little over a year ago we had our daughter Ruthie. I have, if you know me at all, I have always looked forward to having kids. I love kids. I was just so excited um, with my wife Stephanie and I, we found out we were pregnant. And leading up to that day, there's this, this amazing anticipation and excitement. Um, and it turns out it's nothing like the movies uh, presented that it is. Um, but I was just so excited and didn't know what to expect. And then we, we, uh, she was born, and it was just this wonderful time and celebration. But you know what the most amazing, I can honestly say this, the most amazing joy that I have experienced as a parent has been? It's when Ruthie recognized me. It's when she looked at me and smiled for the first time and I got to say Steph, that wasn't gas, that was actually a smile. <laughs> it's when she recognized me. You see, there's this, this weird thing as a parent where uh, right after having Ruthie, I'd have a friend say, so what's it like? What's it like being a dad? And I'd say, it's, it's amazing, but I don't really know if she prefers if I'm even in the room or not. And, and now to, to have this, this joy, I just, I love coming home and, and her, her face smiles and just lights up and she's in her walker and she awkwardly, clumsily, like, she just kind of runs towards me and she recognizes who I am. She knows that her dad has a different role in her life than everyone else that she comes into contact with. And my friends, your heavenly father wants you to recognize him this morning. He wants you to know that that he is so much better than the fake kings and the fake promises of sin that try to present to you. He wants you to know that that we're going to have a tendency to look to other kings and other rulers as being lord of our lives. He wants you to know, just like I want, I long for Ruthie to know how much I love her, that I would die for her, that I love her unconditionally. God wants you to know that his promises are true, that that he loves you more than you can even think is possible because Ruthie doesn't even understand how much I love her how much more does our Heavenly Father love us and it's only when you recognize what his kingship is what he actually did that we respond in worship this way would you pray with me Heavenly Father we long for the day when our faith isn't necessary when we can finally see you face to face, and we see you sitting on your throne. God, I, I confess, I so often go through the motions of recognizing you as king and then acting as if it doesn't matter. But God, this morning, we, we thank you that it is you who is holding on to us and not the other way around, that we are dependent on your faithfulness to us and that we rest in this because you are a faithful, good king who rules over us. And we pray that at the beginning of, of celebrating this holy week, Today, that our response would be to fall down and worship before our King. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.